This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to cell one, and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cell. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today, I have our brand new technical record specialist. That's the one. Ian Pickens, the one and only Ian Pickens here to tell us one of the coolest stories. And he kind of lives this personally. He's got a really weird and awesome personal connection to this. So welcome to the show, Ian. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Like you said, I have a weird personal connection to this. I first learned about this guy when I was actually living in the Frank Church Wilderness, which is where this story takes place. So, uh... Wait, okay, back up. Can you tell us a little about yourself and how you found yourself living in the Frank Church Wilderness? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) so uh, my background's in environmental history, and while I was doing my undergraduate work at Boise State, I found a program called Semester in the Wild where I could basically attend classes through the University of Idaho and live at their research station out in the middle of the Frank Church Wilderness. So I spent from like August till November in 2018 out there in the wilderness. And while I was out there, I was taking a North American environmental history class. And one of the other students did a project about this guy, Frank Lobear and the, the murder that happened out there. But since we were out in the middle of nowhere, we kind of had limited resources. So I just thought that I'd jump in on this and with you know the full access to the internet, get a little bit more of the details down. So very yeah. cool. All right, well, I, I am dying to hear this whole story. All right, <laughs> well, we'll just get right into it. So Mr. Frank Lobear, number 5319. He was an old prospector from the Big Creek area of Idaho. And we're going to really look at Mr. Lobear and his crime from a few perspectives, hearing from all kinds of sources and people with all sorts of weird little interesting details. That's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) So, Frank was born on September 28, 1886, out in Minnesota, just outside of Minneapolis in Watertown. According to some sources, Frank was actually born with the last name Lobauer, L-O-B-A-U-E-R, but because he was poorly educated and sort of illiterate, he spelled and pronounced his last name Lobear, L-O-B-E-A-R, which is what all of the records here at the penitentiary list his last name as, is Lobear. It's kind of a cool name for a kind of a hermit in the woods like right uh, yeah like an old prospector out <laughs> yeah. on out on a mountain last name low bear low bear 
Yeah. So you might hear me go back and forth a little bit between Lobear and Lobauer, but I'll kind of explain why that is when we do that. So not a lot's known about Frank's early childhood. There's some information that we have that was revealed by letters written by friends to the state pardon board, and we'll get to that because there's a lot of that kind of stuff. So at some point, after his childhood in Minneapolis or near Minneapolis, he moves out west. And in 1913, he submitted a mineral claim with the land office in the mountains north of Weezer, Idaho. So that's kind of the first record we have of him in the west. And three years later, at the age of 29, he patented a 160-acre homestead in Weezer, so south of where his mining claim was set up. And he stayed there for a few years. At some point, he met a woman, and on June 1st, 1923, Frank Lobert married Myrtle in Weezer. After they were married for about three years, they had their first son, whose name was Leslie Frank Lobert. Kind of an interesting older name, yeah. Leslie. And he was born in McCleary, Washington, actually. So according to birth records and census data, Myrtle's family lived up in McCleary, so she probably just went home to have the child up there with the support of her family. So with the small family started in Weezer, Frank is looking to earn a living. And since he kind of lacks the benefit of education, he decides to move to Big Creek in hopes of becoming a prospector. I guess his mine up north of Weezer wasn't quite working out. And this area over near Big Creek was sort of booming because in like right around 1901, there was a gold strike at Thunder Mountain. So a bunch of miners moved in there. And then here we are about 25 years later, and there's still quite a few miners hanging out in the area. So he moves over there. This kind of connects back to the HM St. Cyr story because HM was a surveyor and he talks about the big boom in thunder mountain and so he actually starts a hotel in that area up in lardo which he he was hoping would bring all these miners that were flocking into that area they would stop at his hotel and stay overnight before they you know it was their last pitch of civilization before going to the mountains so that's that's funny that yeah So when Frank first moved over to Big Creek, he didn't bring his wife and son with him. They they stayed back in Weezer, and he built a small camp along the northern bank of Big Creek where he lived by himself. In fact, this spot is actually still noted on some maps as Lobauer Basin. Well, actually, just on Google Maps, if you just zoom in real close on this little piece of land, it comes up with Lobauer Basin right there on Google Maps. So, kind of neat. So, it's about 70 miles northeast of Cascade where he set up his camp, and it's in what's now known as the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness. And that wasn't established until the 60s, so, you know, there were people homesteading out there up until that point. But this camp was 11 miles from where Big Creek meets the middle fork of the Salmon River, and this whole story is going to kind of take place along Big Creek. Uh, There's a few other characters that we're going to meet here in a little bit that live along Big Creek. So this remote area was really sparsely settled. Even at the time when the gold strike happened, there was just not that many people out there. And of course today there's, I don't know, occasionally some college kids living out there, but that's pretty much it. It's pretty sparsely settled. So this story really happens in the middle of nowhere. 
So while Frank's out living in this area, he's working odd jobs at various mining claims, just trying to make a living, and he's hoping to eventually develop mining claims of his own, which later on he, he does get to do that with some of the money that he's saved up. Eventually, Lobear moves his wife and his son, Leslie, out to his camp, and during this period of time, the couple, they have two more sons, Billy and John. Myrtle, Frank's wife, eventually ends up returning to Washington State, and that there's a couple of reasons for that. First, on June 25th, 1933, Lobear's first son, Leslie, he was seven years old at the time, he accompanied Frank on a prospecting trip up to Chamberlain Basin, which is just a few miles from this camp that they're living at. And Leslie goes missing. Yeah, not, not a good situation. There's some articles that talk about the governor sending like an airplane flying over to like look for any sign of this kid. There's actually some articles that refer to him as Dean, which is interesting. All the birth records say Leslie Frank Lobear, but some of the articles called him Dean. And at one point, a handkerchief with his initials was found at a cabin like in the area, but nothing ever came of that which was weird. I actually found articles in the Idaho Statesman from Myrtle, Frank's wife, looking for Leslie as late as 1970. She was still publishing these articles and saying like, well, anyone who has any information about my son, please contact me. And in one of the articles, she alleges that Frank arranged to give Leslie away to someone and that the prospecting trip to Chamberlain Basin was a ruse. Why would you do that? Like, I is he a I burden don't or know. something and like I oh, that's crazy. Really don't understand it. But yeah, and that's not a good thing if your wife like thinks that thinks of the, you yeah. that you would do that to your own child. Yeah, now Frank has <gasps> two more two kids, Billy and John, that are still with his wife and they they move out of the area, and there's another reason for, for that happening, and that has to do with a man by the name of Walter Estep. Walt, as many sources call him, was an interesting character. During World War I, he actually served as a sergeant in France for 18 months as part of Hospital Corps Unit Number 4. That's about all the information I could find on that, but... So he had that veteran status, and then when he was back in the States uh, in 1920, he was appointed as a ranger in the Paddy Flat District of the Idaho National Forest. A few years later, he was transferred down to the South Fork District, so right in this Big Creek area. A lot of sources said that he liked to sort of act like a big shot and come across as uh, a dangerous man to cross, as one, one of these articles put it. In 1925, just a couple years after being transferred down to the Big Creek area, he decides to resign from his position and pursue mining. And he sets up right in the Big Creek watershed. He establishes some mines up on what's called Ramey Ridge. And he, at one point, uh, purchased a property called Acorn Creek that we now call Dewey Moore. There's an airstrip there, one that got grandfathered in. Yeah, so... Planes now can, like, fly into this Acorn Creek Ranch that's called Dewey Moore now. But he owned that for a period of time. He actually, he bought it from a squatter who didn't bother filing a a homestead patent on it. 
And so he bought it from him and then actually filed a legitimate homestead patent. He had that for a couple of years, and that property is actually just a couple miles upstream from where Frank had his camp. So they're right in the same area. Yeah, Yeah. kind of neighbors. Yeah. Estep establishes the Mayflower Mine and the Moonshine Mine, which I think are some fun names for mines. And then he also took over an abandoned quartz claim that he renamed the Arastra Group. So he established this mining camp up on Ramey Ridge near the Mayflower Mine and Moonshine Mine. And at this mining camp, this is where Walter Estep and Frank Lobauer would meet right around 1930. So when Frank moved over to Big Creek, he found employment at Walter Estep's mines. Unfortunately, they didn't quite get along, uh, especially when it came to finances. And if the financial problems weren't bad enough, while Lobear was under Estep's employ, Lobear claimed that Estep was trying to steal his wife. No, more troubles brewing. Yeah. So at this point, a guy's trying to steal his wife, and his son has gone missing, as far as we know. And... He just he sends Myrtle and their two sons back to Washington. He says, "All right, you got to get out of here. Like this isn't this isn't good." Yeah. The entire time that Myrtle was there uh, with Lobear, they they knew Estep. Like Estep was in their lives because Estep was like the first employer that that Lobear had out in the Frank Church up on Ramey Ridge. The issues between these two guys came to a boiling point on December fifth, nineteen thirty five. Lobear was afraid of Estep, so he decided to lay low at his camp along Big Creek. It's the middle of winter, so he's hoping that the heavy snow will keep Estep out of the area. However, Estep had some important business to oversee right at this time, so he was making his way in there no matter what. Estep acted as an administrator of sorts for an aging man named David Lewis, who's also a very cool character. David Lewis held the deed to a homestead that was four miles downstream from Lobear's camp. So Estep had to walk by Lobear's camp to get down there. So David Lewis, the guy that is selling his property and Estep has to oversee the whole thing. He first entered the Big Creek area at the age of 35 in 1878. He was actually, uh, he was working with the U.S. Army. I don't think that he was actually in the army, but he was running a pack train for them during the so-called sheep eater campaign where they were removing the Takutika people from that area. So after all of that, he decided that he liked the area. And uh, interestingly, the state of Idaho placed a bounty on mountain lion scalps in 1914 uh, when Dave was living out there. So he became enthralled with hunting and trapping these big cats and then turning in their scalps for the bounty money. And this earned him the nickname Cougar Dave. Cougar Dave. Cougar Dave. Coolest name. Yeah. So David Cougar Dave Lewis. Cougar Dave and Walt Estep were actually pretty good friends for a while. Uh They guided big game hunts for government officials together and... 
Cougar Dave frequently removed mountain lions near Estep's properties. So if Estep had a problem with a mountain lion, he'd contact Cougar Dave. He'd bring out his, his hound dogs that would, you know, they were trained to tree cougars, run them right up the tree, and then bark at them and keep them up there until Cougar Dave could get to them. Cougar Dave's homestead is where I lived what? out in the Frank Church. Oh my yeah, and one of the legends that I heard about him was that if he couldn't get a cat out of a tree, he would go up into the tree and wrestle it out himself. No Which way. is totally like a tall tale. Like yeah. there's no way that this guy, because he was not very big either. Oh, he was like it's a like short stocky, he's like a short stocky kind of guy. Oh. But, you know. I was yeah. thinking of like Hagrid, like living out in the yeah. forest by himself. <laughs> wow. Right, yeah. No, he's like the short stocky old man and he's claiming that he's climbing up in trees and wrestling mountain lions out of them. But... He's an interesting guy. So he's absolutely the kind of guy that doesn't want to leave his nice little homestead out in the middle of the, the wilderness, you know? Yeah. He was able to still live out there because when the Frank Church Wilderness was established as a wilderness, mm-hmm. those private inn holdings were allowed to remain. So yeah. Cougar Dave was able to live out there even though it was wilderness where, by definition, man is a visitor who does not remain. Right. <laughs> He lives out there until he's 92. Wow. And people have been coming to him and saying, hey, can I buy your property? This is really cool. And he just always kind of like turns people down, turns them away, doesn't want to sell it to anybody until he meets this guy named Jess Taylor. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of hit it off. And so Dave decides that he wants to sell the property to Jess Taylor. So they kind of get a deal going believe it was in the spring of 1935 and then he says hey i'll be back in in december and we'll get all the papers drawn up and i'll buy it from you and as a bonus i'll let you even live in your cabin you don't even have to move off the property so yeah Yeah. so dave of course takes him up on this deal Uh and that's where walt eastup comes in because he's working as an administrator for dave because he's so old and so he's hiking in all the way from Cascade to oversee this transfer of the property. On his journey into Cougar Dave's property, he passes by Frank Lobear's camp, like four miles upstream. And he did so without incident. Lobear just kind of stayed in his tent while he passed by. But then Frank Lobear actually started following Esep at a distance. And he followed him pretty close down to the Dave Lewis homestead. And then he he returned back to his camp. He sat down in his tent next to his wood stove, and he just put his rifle across his knees. According to Lobear, Estep returned around noon. And Estep saw that Lobear was holding a rifle, and he quickly grabbed for the muzzle and tried to point it away from him. Well, a heated argument ensued between the two guys, and Lobear started spitting threats at Estep, telling him, you owe me money, you're trying to steal my wife, I'm going to kill you, like, you got to pay up. And eventually the the two men decide to, you know, cool off and talk it over. So Estep takes a few steps back, leaving about six feet of distance between the two men. Lobear keeps insisting that Estep owes him for work that he's done on a mining claim owned by Estep up on Ramey Ridge. Mm -hmm. Estep refuses to pay, and he turns to leave. 
Lobear raises his rifle and states, I'll settle you with a bullet, and squeezes the trigger. Wow. Yeah. What a line. He's the only witness to this because right. he's the one that did it, and the other yeah. guy's, you know, dead now. So I, I wonder if he actually said that. Right. Or, you know, sometimes after an argument you're taking a shower or something, oh, you're like, I oh, I should have said that. <laughs> so <laughs> that could be embellished by Lobear, yeah, but yeah. either way. So immediately after the shooting, Frank walks four miles downstream to Cougar Dave's homestead. And that's where Estep had just come from, watched the papers get signed. And Estep actually had the papers in his backpack when he got killed. He was hiking out with the papers, and he had to go file them in Cascade to finalize this property transfer. So when Frank gets to the Cougar Dave homestead, he goes right into the cabin that he knows Cougar Dave lives in. And he confessed to shooting Walt Estep and asks that Dave notify the authorities. So the man who had just purchased the property from Cougar Dave, Jess Taylor, he called Sheriff Robert Wilson to report the crime. And actually, in an oral history, Jess Taylor recalls the events of that day. You haven't been tempted to keep the the thing going, though, in recent years. (laughs) Well, there's uh, something else that might be of interest, too, is the way the... uh that I purchased the place, that is the yeah. deed itself. Uh, one of his administrators was uh, a man, man by the name of Wav Estep. Hmm. How do you spell that? Uh, E-S-T-E-P. Uh-huh. And uh, he came in to witness the situation, you see. Uh, Lavander was another one, and uh, I think Harry Shellworth was the other one. How did, how did Mr. Lewis happen to have administrators at that point, at that time? Well, uh, they just, uh, they just look after him and see that he got food and, you know. Uh, had, had they been appointed? Uh, uh, by apparently. The court? Apparently. Uh-huh. Yeah. It wasn't that he was, uh, that uh, he, there was anything wrong with him mentally or anything like that, but in any deal, uh, why uh, yeah. uh, he needed assistance. Sure. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they were looking out for Had they been appointed by the court to... Uh, I presume so. Uh-huh. Uh, th- th- I would think that would be the case. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. In the case of administrators. Yeah. And this uh, Wally Step, he was... Uh, oh, did a little mining and so on. And he also, uh, at one time, owned the uh, ranch where Dewey Moore is. Oh. Mm-hmm. He was one of the... I don't know that he was the first owner, but he was one of the first owners of that. So you mentioned another name in connection with that same that ranch. That was Beal. Beal, yeah. That was, yeah. Was that after Eastep? Yeah. Beal was after Eastep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that was after Eastep. And, uh, but the way it was recorded, uh, I wrote Dave a check for the balance of his money. I gave him a deposit when we um, just grew, grew up a little, a little agreement between us. In the spring, when I weigh in, and when he went back in that fall to complete the deal, I said I'll be in in, in November, and uh, and we will complete the deal. Why this Wall East step came down all mm-hmm. the way from Cascade, mm-hmm. and uh, brought these papers, the deeds, and so on, and uh, to witness the situation. So we got the uh, got things straightened out, and uh, on the way out with these papers, while we're right up there, uh, you've heard of Low Bear. 
flat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, uh, it was a miner there by the name of Lobar, and he, uh, this uh, East Step and Lobar had a little feud going, and anyhow, that's as far as East Step got. He shot him in the back of the head with a thirty thirty. Okay. Uh, with these papers. Huh. Yeah. Enemy's pack. And so, uh. Well, this, was, this was how long after you'd gotten the whole thing signed up? Be right. Right then. I mean, the next day or so? Yes. Yeah. Golly sake. What is that? Four or five miles yeah. from your place up yeah. to that bar? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so, uh, then there's telephones all over the country. You could talk anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I called the sheriff, uh, by the name of Bob Wilson. I knew him, I'd met him, you know, and yeah. I asked him, now, when you come in after the body, will you please take the deeds and so on out of that pack and see that they're recorded? Sure. And that's the way that the deed of that ranch was recorded. I'll be darned. Yeah. Whatever happened to the guy who did the shooting? Well, he, he landed in the pan. Huh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so Jess Taylor's first Jeez. thought is, hey, this guy's dead and he's got really important papers. So I'm going to call the sheriff and let him know and ask him if he'll make sure that those papers get filed for me because, <laughs> you know, that's the biggest fire that we have burning right now. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. So All the priorities, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, the oral history continues, and Jess Taylor says, Well, was this an ambush type thing, or were they arguing about it? Well, uh, this... Uh this low bear, he was uh, wintering there, had a tent up in the log frame. I think it's some log frame there yet, if you know where to look for it. Hmm. And, uh, well, was just passing by, and uh, I guess as uh, he walked by, why, uh, he, 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 wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't shoot him in the face while wasn't looking at him because he shot him in the back of the head. So were you with him at the time? No, no, no. How'd you no. hear about it? Or how did you well, uh, low bear come right on down. And oh, he did? Yes, and went in the, the day's cabin and said, I just killed East Day. Kind of brighten up your day a little bit, wouldn't it? Yes, it was. I just walk in kind of casual like that. Yeah, and say, I just killed a man up here. Especially the man who was carrying out the papers that were important to you. Yes, yes. Well, well he, he, this wasn't even a self-defense thing. This was just oh, no, plain no, no, it was just uh, shot in the back. Huh. Hmm. Son of a gun. Yeah. Well, then... Uh, he was the, uh, Eastep was the principal witness to the signing of the paper. Yes, yes, and, and uh, he, he witnessed the, uh, the deal. But he wasn't around at the time it was recorded. No, no, uh, but the sheriff taking care of that. Sure. Of course, the, the deal was all completed. It was just oh, yeah. a matter of recording the paper. Right, yeah. And so that's the way that, uh... I'll be turned. And there was only one transfer, and that was from Dave to me. Yeah. And... The abstract wasn't very big. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> Titles are a twin Not paper. One page. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have a lot of uh, conditions and covenants and restrictions and things like that. That is such a wild oral history. That is. Yeah. Wow, how did you get this? So I actually helped transcribe these oral histories while I was out there at the Taylor Wilderness Research Station. I helped transcribe these oral histories. That's amazing. I knew that they were up there. I contacted the special collections and archives because there's an entire collection just called the David Cougar Dave Lewis papers (laughs) that are housed up there at at the University of Idaho. Um, So I contacted the archivists up there and they were able to send me these oral histories so I could use them here. Man, Cougar Dave, what a a character to like 
half tied into this whole thing right here. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, everything just kind of <laughs> happened right around his homestead. Yeah. After ensuring that the sheriff was informed of the killing, Frank returned to his camp, and he was accompanied by two ranchers who were deputized by the sheriff to watch him until the sheriff could come in and take Frank into custody. So the ranchers spent the night with Lobear, who actually got drunk off a bottle of whiskey. Guess where he got the bottle of whiskey from? Cougar Dave? Walt Eastup's backpack. What? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Did he admit this? Apparently the ranchers saw him take the the bottle of whiskey out of the pack. Oh my So he started rummaging through the backpack and... For someone who you think is having an affair with your wife and cheating you out all this money and you just shot him in the back of the head, I hope it tasted good. It's probably the last whiskey he's going to have for a long time. Well, it gets worse. Oh no. At one point, one of the deputized ranchers said that... Frank said, how many kids I got? Oh. And the rancher responded, you've got three, Frank. And Frank responded, well, two of them belong to that so-and-so laying out there. (gasps) What? Yeah, so we've got one kid that went missing and two kids that Frank doesn't think are actually even his that are living with his wife in another state because of... This affair and yeah, it's just sad. It's really it's sad. It's really sad. Things just keep oh. piling up. Mm-hmm. The story just keeps getting worse. The sheriff arrives the next morning and Lobear goes with him peacefully. They get into an airplane, single engine, like prop plane kind of deal. And uh, Frank Lobear, the sheriff, and the body of Walter Estep, and they're flown 70 miles down to Cascade. So Frank Lobear is immediately booked into the Valley County Jail that first week of December 1935. He actually had to wait seven months for his trial to start. I couldn't find any information on why that was, Mm -hmm. but in June of 1936, his trial finally commences. And the opening statement given by the defense asserts that Lobear quote, had been living in fear of Estep and was crazed by anger when their trails crossed on a mountain ridge, end quote. It was argued that Frank Lobert actually shot Walt Estep to death on Big Creek in self-defense and that Lobert was temporarily insane at the time of the shooting. So throughout the trial, there's tons of testimony from the people involved and intertwined with the lives of Frank Lobert and Walt Estep. Unfortunately, the first guy to learn of this crime, my favorite guy in the story, Cougar Dave, passed away three days before the trial. What? He wasn't able to give his testimony or act as a character witness or anything. Do you think he would have been for Estep with his kind of business dealings? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, It's hard to say because Lobear must have had a decent relationship with him if he felt comfortable going down and confessing to him true yeah yeah. so hard hard to know for sure which way cougar dave would have (laughs) gone but i guess we'll never know now dorothy taylor the wife of jess taylor the guy who purchased the land from cougar dave uh, she was called to the the stand and she testified that low bear came and visited the property right after the shooting and turned himself in sheriff robert wilson the guy who ended up getting flown in he got called to the stand and he stated quote 
Lobert told me Estep owed him money on a mining deal and was stealing his wife. He said he offered to settle for $5,000 and shot him when Estep wouldn't pay. End quote. Immediately after sharing this, the prosecution asks Sheriff Robert Wilson, do you think that the $5,000 offer was just for the mining claim or for the wife part of it too? And he says he thought that Estep owed him $5,000 for all of the trouble that he'd been put through. And right after that, uh, Sheriff Wilson introduces evidence from the scene of the crime. He pulls out a shirt that was removed from Walter's body, and it had a hole right through the back, right near the neck. So the coroner who examined the body in Cascade stated that Estep had definitely been shot in the back of the neck. So kind of an uphill battle here arguing self-defense because mm. he was shot in the back of the neck. And the defense ended up bringing several witnesses to the stand. They all corroborated Lobauer's claim that he feared Estep and had been threatened by Estep and that Estep had been, quote, alienating the affection of Mrs. Lobauer. Brad Carey of Warren, Idaho, testified that in 1934, Lobert had actually unsuccessfully requested that Estep be placed under a peace bond following a fight between the two men. Mm. Dan Levan, which is a great name, he was a Forest Service employee. Mm -hmm. uh, he testified that prior to the shooting, Lobert had told Estep that the latter could have his wife if Estep would just leave him alone. So Lobert's really at his wit's end, according to all these witnesses here, yeah. and he's just trying to do anything he can to get Estep to just leave him be. And finally, a doctor from Weezer, Idaho, testified that Lobert was insane at the time of the killing and that he didn't know when the insanity began or concluded, but that he was definitely insane at the time of the killing. Jeez. Several other character witnesses testified to Lobert's honest reputation and good citizenship. But very weirdly, neither Lobert nor his wife Myrtle were ever called to the stand during this trial. So, yeah, he never gets a chance to say anything about it. His wife never gets a chance to say, yeah, he was trying to sleep with me or anything like that. And Frank actually complains about this later on to the pardon board. In its closing statements, the prosecution argued that a series of disagreements between Lobert and Estep culminated in Lobert shooting Estep in the back of the neck with a rifle. All we ask, the prosecuting attorney said, is that this man be removed from society. The prosecution wanted him locked up for it. The defense maintained that Lobert shot in self-defense during a moment of temporary insanity resulting from Estep's continued antagonism. Following the closing statements from both sides of the courtroom, the judge instructed the jury to return with one of five verdicts. Acquittal, not guilty by reason of insanity, guilty of murder in the first degree, guilty of murder in the second degree, or guilty of manslaughter. After 27 hours of oh. deliberation, the jury comes back with their verdict, guilty of manslaughter. That would be so hard. I can only imagine the discussions and fights that they had in that deliberation. Yeah. Just like a two-hour deliberation is intense. Like 27, 27 hours. That's <laughs> a really intense, long, oh. long time to deliberate. 
In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Frank is sentenced to five to ten years in the Idaho State Penitentiary. So he arrives at the penitentiary two days later, and uh, that's on June 28, 1936. Frank is 51 years old when he shows up here. His intake papers describe him as a stocky man, and Note that he stands very specifically at five foot three and one quarter inches tall. Mm-hmm. Got to get that extra quarter inch on there. It's important, it's important. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and he weighs 136 pounds. His hair is described as gray and balding, and his Bertillon chart has some interesting notes. Mm-hmm. Both of his thumbs are described as deformed. His eyes are noted to be crossed, and he has various cut scars on his head and hands. It seems that Frank stayed out of trouble while he was doing his time at the Idaho State Penitentiary. According to his progress report, he became a trustee as early as 1938, so two years into his sentence. And with his status as a trustee, he was allowed to work outside the walls in the area that later became Two Yard. Uh, He actually was tending to the prison's chickens out there. Seven months into his sentence, uh, Governor Barzia Clark received the first of what would be many, many letters written on Frank's behalf. The first letter was penned by his sister and signed by both his mother-in-law and father-in-law. The letter notes that he's planning to appeal to the April 1937 meeting of the Idaho State Board of Pardons, which is pretty soon. Like, that's only about a year into his, his sentence. And the family asks the governor to consider Frank's case because his wife is in really poor health and can't provide for their, their two young boys. The letter reads, quote, The two children are sick for want of better care and a home. So they're really pleading with the governor to get Frank out so he can help support these two young boys. Yeah. Which is really interesting given what Frank had to say about those two boys earlier. But that's yeah. a... Pleading for the the well-being of the young boys is kind of a common theme throughout a lot of these letters that we'll see. Yeah. So a couple days later, Myrtle Lobear, Frank's wife, uh, she writes a letter herself to Governor Clark. And in that letter, she states plainly that she is struggling to care for her children and asks the governor to pardon Frank. Quote, I don't want to keep these children in the orphanage. I want them to myself. I tried to get a pension in Idaho County last August, but all they did was put the children in an orphanage and left me on the poor farm and never intended to help me. End quote. So she's trying to take care of the kids, and Mm -hmm. she's making the same argument to the governor that Frank's sister and parents-in-law did. In addition to these two letters that were written on Frank's behalf, he penned one himself, (laughs) and he wrote this one directly to the Idaho State Board of Pardons, 
and in it he outlines his side of the story. This is a very wordy letter, so I've added some punctuation here, but I'm just going to read you a quote from it. Estep beat me out of all the main property I had. He also beat me out of $200 cash money. He also beat me out of five years' supplies along with five years of hard work. He also caused me five years' trouble between me and my wife. He tried to get her to help kill me, but she would not do it. She told me all about it later. End quote. So now we have Frank saying that Estep was trying to convince Myrtle to help kill Frank. Gosh. The story just keeps getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> yeah, and, and sadder and sadder. Oh. <laughs> The things that I kept uncovering as I kept going deeper and deeper into this case sometimes yeah. made me want to stop reading about it. Right. Because it's just so much for one person to have going on in their life. Yeah. This letter continues, and it details Lobert's attempt to ask county officers for protection. Uh, he states that his wife wrote a letter to the county officers for protection. Even after they... Uh, told the authorities the whole story, Frank and his wife were told that they did not have enough evidence to convict Estep of anything. According to Frank, the authorities told him that Estep would likely kill him before they could convict him of a crime or, quote, do anything about it, oh end quote. Gosh. Frank naturally pointed out that if such was the case, then it further supported his argument. The letter continues, quote, then they told me that I would have to do my own protection. The officers then said, Since you've told us all about this, no jury in the world would ever convict you if you're forced to kill him. They told me that he was a bad man and would probably shoot. End quote. So he's saying that he went to the authorities at one point, mm -hmm. tried to get a protection order of some kind, mm -hmm. and the authorities said, we, there's not enough evidence for anything like that. But since you've already told us this, if you do have to shoot him, nobody's ever going to convict you. He's in prison right now for doing exactly that. Mm -hmm. So we actually have a record from Ranger A.E. Briggs talking about Lobert asking for protection. In Ranger Briggs' account, he states that Frank visited the Warren Ranger Station on a day that he wasn't there. So Frank spoke to the Ranger's wife, Hiley and asked her to call the Grangeville Sheriff and place Estep under a peace bond to keep him away from Frank's wife. Frank alleged that Estep was, quote, in the habit of taking Mrs. Lobert to the Estep cabin and keeping her there for several days. And if the sheriff failed to stop the practice soon, he intended to kill Estep, end quote. So messed up. Ugh. Yeah. Highly managed to call the sheriff, and she explained the situation, but she made it pretty clear that she didn't want to tell the sheriff for Frank that he was going to kill Estep if the sheriff didn't do something about it. But Frank refused to talk on the phone to the sheriff himself for whatever reason. So the sheriff really didn't give any indication that he was going to do anything about the situation. Mm -hmm. The letter continues with Frank explaining that he went to his mining camp along Big Creek for the winter, hoping that the heavy snow would keep Estep out of the area and away from him. He claims that Estep went to Washington State during this time to visit Myrtle Lobear, Frank's wife. Jeez. Frank then alleges that he heard from a friend that when Estep returned from Washington State, he bragged about having a second-hand family 
and that he was going to Big Creek to kill the man who was in the way. Frank was hiding out in the middle of nowhere, in the snow, just somehow hearing all these rumors that that Estep's coming for him and that Estep is going to Washington and visiting Frank's wife. Lobear in this letter then claims that Estep made threats all the way from Boise to Big Creek, claiming that he was going to kill Lobear and bragging that he already had Lobear's wife. In the letter, he describes the nature of the encounter at his mining camp on that fateful day in December of 1935. He writes, quote, Estep said, the first time I meet him on the trail, I will kill him. He came to my camp, and it came to a showdown. It was either him or me. After I killed Estep, the sheriff came out after me and took me to jail, away from all my property and camp, and I lost everything I had. The letter ends with a simple plea. Personal interview, please. Respectfully submitted, Frank Lobear, register number 5319. This is a really interesting letter. Like I said before, it's kind of rambly, not really well put together, but we know that his education wasn't all that great, so it kind of makes sense that this is how his letters were written. Mm -hmm. And they actually did improve over time. The later letters were a little bit better put together. Unfortunately, I don't know if the State Board of Pardons would have ever actually read this letter, because normally when an inmate applies for parole, we have all the slips in the inmate file that are like all the slips that were sent to each of the people on the pardon board, mm-hmm. all that information. And like we'll have the news article that they had to get published. None of that's there for 1937 for the pardon board meeting. Yeah. Like none of that documentation's there, which is weird because all of his later pardon applications have all of that information in the file. So I I don't know that he actually properly applied for pardon in April 1937. That that sounded like, yeah, he must have had a misstep there. Yeah. Didn't didn't tick all the boxes. Yeah. Also, the letters that were written to Governor Clark on Mr. Lobear's behalf received replies from the Secretary of State that actually indicate that he hadn't applied to the April meeting of the pardon board but that their letters would be sent to the July board if he applied then. So those letters that other people wrote got forwarded along. I'm just not sure if that one that he wrote necessarily got forwarded along. So after serving just shy of one year, Frank officially applied to the pardon board for the first time in July 1937. So those letters were forwarded along, and he met all of the technical requirements, uh, sending notice to the proper officials and publishing a notice in the Payette Lake Star. Mm-hmm. And the board also received another letter written in favor of Lobear's freedom and another le- letter written by Lobear himself. The other letter that was sent in on Frank's behalf to Governor Barzia Clark came from a lawyer and former assistant attorney general from Edwardsburg, which is mm-hmm. kind of up in that Big Creek area. Yeah. The letter reads, quote, I understand that on July 7th, the Pardon Board will consider the case of Frank Lobear, now serving a penitentiary sentence for the killing of Walter Estep in Valley County. As I was well acquainted with both of these men for many years, I am tendering you information within my personal knowledge that may aid you in arriving at a just verdict. So this guy actually knew both of the people involved. Here's his kind of account of both of them and their relationship. The letter details Walter Estep's history and reputation in the Big Creek area. He entered the area in 1920, shortly after the United States Forest Service took the area under its care. 
Estep was employed as a forest ranger, and rumors were quickly spread that he was a, quote, gunman sent in to settle the bad men of this section. Estep was allegedly constantly armed with a heavy revolver, even after he left the Forest Service, and began staking his own mining claims in the area. The author notes, quote, He likes to pose as a dangerous man to cross. He threatened to kill me for no reason whatsoever outside his own erroneous imagination. End quote. Jeez. So according to this guy, yeah. Estep wasn't a very nice guy to him either. Yeah. And he kind of was posing as like a big shot, like, don't cross me, I'll kill you, kind of kind of a guy. The letter then paints a portrait of Frank Lobert, describing him as a man to whom fate has been most unkind. The author asserts that when Lobert was a child, he was frequently brutally beaten and denied educational advantages, and that, quote, even at present, he can neither read nor write. The author notes that Lobert drifted into the Big Creek area and earned a living by working odd jobs at various mining camps on Ramey Ridge, and that the author of this letter actually employed Lobert several times and found him a willing worker to the best of his ability. The author then offers his perspective on the wrongdoings committed by Estep against Lobert, which led to the events of December 1935. Quote, Estep treated Lobert with the utmost contempt. He employed Lobert to do mining work on the group of claims owned by Estep, promising an interest in the group when the work was done. And after Lobert had toiled faithfully for weeks, Estep coolly informed him that he had changed his mind about deeding him the interest. End quote. On top of that, According to the letter, when Lobert brought his wife to live with him in Big Creek, Estep seduced her. So now we have another guy saying, yes, this was the case. The letter concludes, quote, Is it to be wondered at that constant brooding by Lobert over the wrongs he had suffered at the hands of Estep resulted in his killing Estep in a fit of temporary insanity? Speaking as a lawyer, I know that the plea of temporary insanity is one to be received with great caution, but... In all my knowledge and experience as a lawyer, I have never before known a case in which such a plea was more fully justified. End quote. That's so sad. Yeah. He knows both of these men. He knows all the circumstances around it. And it's interesting to have another perspective just saying sort of the same stuff that we've been hearing from all these other people. Mm. And it just gets really sad hearing him described as a man to whom fate has been most unkind right it's like the plot of so many stories like the kid who's finally standing up to the bully i mean got to right talk about the victim and everything else but it sounds like he kind of had a reputation being this bully yeah it's a rough story but for this first time that he officially applied to the pardon board july 37 he wrote a letter arguing that he didn't receive a fair trial he mentions that neither himself nor his wife were ever called to the stand during the case, and he also states that only half of his witnesses were put on the stand and that the ones that were called to the stand were only allowed a few words. Frank also, in this letter, recalls an interaction with a juror immediately following the court case. He claims that a juror visited him in the jail following the trial, and the juror asked Lobert why he wasn't put on the stand, and Frank told him that his attorney instructed him to, quote, keep his mouth shut, which could be the lawyer trying to, you know, prevent him from saying something that could dig him a deeper hole. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of July 1937, Frank Lobert received a two-word decision from the Idaho State Pardon Board, pardon denied. 
Undeterred by these previous failures, though, Frank began his application for April 1938. The letter that he wrote for this meeting was quite different. His earlier letters filled, like, the entire available space on the page, even the margins, just packing in everything he could. And the letters were kind of rambling and scattered. But in this letter, he seems really subdued. He has a drastically different tone because the earlier letters seem really frantic, like he's just trying to argue his case to the board. But this letter is just really, really calm. It says, gentlemen, I very respectfully ask that my sentence be commuted. If I could be released during the spring months or early summer, I could go to work and make enough money to carry me through the winter months. I want to make a home for my wife and children. Respectfully submitted, Frank Lobear. So he's refraining from arguing his case this time. He really seems to just want to move on, just get back to work on his mining claims. And at this point, he's served a year and a half. And there's a lot of letters coming in from his wife on behalf of his kids saying they're struggling. So he wants to get out. Did he know how to read and write, or is he illiterate? By the accounts of other people, he's illiterate. Yeah. But it seems like he does know how to write to some degree because oh, okay. he wrote, he hand wrote the okay. first couple of letters. That's why I was wondering is maybe he was transcribing and that's why there was so rambly that like someone else was writing as he's like saying these things. And But the, if, the handwriting looks like it would be his handwriting. Yeah, someone who's you know? kind of. Yeah. It's not well put together. It's kind of hard hard to read. Uh Yeah. So, but some of the later letters are typed. So he might have had those transcribed, and maybe that's why they're a little bit better put together, a little more succinct. Yeah. Is that the person that was transcribing them for him helped him kind of organize his thoughts a little bit better? Yeah. I just, just care. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And maybe he made some more acquaintances or friends. While yeah. incarcerated, who were like, "Hey, let me help you out." Like, I've done this a few times, or you know, I've helped other people with this. This is all you need, you know. I yeah, and right during happens quite a bit. Right during this time period is when the Wall City Bulletin started too. So there was a whole like journalism group starting up in the prison. Yeah. So there would have been a resource to go to to get help with that. You know, if you needed some help with this writing. Yeah. What's can you explain what the Wall City Bulletin is? Yeah, the Wall City Bulletin was the first newsletter that was produced by the men that were incarcerated here. It only ran for the months of 1939, and there were only nine issues. So they tried to make it every month, but they had some trouble getting content for every single month. So they eventually started doing every other month. But yeah, it's just a cool little newsletter that has everything fiction, nonfiction, poetry, visual art, just a little outlet for the, the men. And the goal of it was to teach the profession of journalism so that when men were on the outside, they could get a job. And actually, the man who started as the editor, who as far in my research as I can tell, his name was just Eminon, he actually went on to work for the Idaho Statesman after oh. he was out. So man, that's crazy. Yeah. But, yeah. And just for listeners, Ian, one of his first projects here, I feel like, was interning to digitize all of the Wall City Bulletin and the clock and the uh, Acme. Yeah, the Acme. So, uh, you know, everything that you, you hear in this next season where we bring up the clock and articles from the clock, that's all to the thanks and hard work of me. And so <laughs> seriously appreciate yeah. all that that you've done. Like, it's been amazing. Yeah, it's, it was a fun project, and I learned a lot while I was doing it. So, yeah. so there were three other letters that were sent to the April 
1938 meeting for the State Pardon Board, and two of those were from Frank's wife, and the other was written by a man who had previously employed Frank. So both of the letters written by Myrtle uh, cover the same two subjects, her struggle to support her children who have been placed in an orphanage and the fact that Frank holds the deed to a few mining claims in the Big Creek area, which are in danger of delinquency if Frank is unable to make improvements on the properties by July 1938. So she's pleading for Frank's freedom so that he can go out and maintain the mining claims, make improvements on them, which is a condition of keeping those claims, Mm -hmm. and earning a living, which would allow the family to be together again, get the kids out of the orphanage, that sort of stuff. The other letter that was considered by the April 1938 Pardon Board came from Charles Mann. Mann states that Frank was in his employ for two years, almost up until he killed Walter Eastep. The author describes Mr. Lobert as, quote, honest, industrious, and faithful, and always trying to take good care of his wife and babies, end quote. As we know from the many letters Mrs. Lobert sent to Governor Clark, she was struggling to care for the children at this time. The author of this letter offers to assist Mr. Lobert if he were to be pardoned, writing, quote, Should the pardon board decide to pardon or parole him, I shall do all I can to get him started right again, so he and family can be together again and forget and once more live a happy and useful life. So he does have that offer, Mm -hmm. but keep in mind this offer comes in 1938. He didn't get out for a while until after that, so... We'll talk about that a little bit later, but I don't know if he was ever able to take up that offer. Yeah. But Frank was clearly respected by a handful of men that he had previously worked for, um, so much so that they were willing to help him regain his footing if he got out. But unfortunately, April 1938, he gets denied pardon for the second time. Around this time, Frank gets assigned his job working with the chickens outside the yard. So he's a trustee by this point. Um, so he can hang out outside the walls and work out there. Um, he was and probably hanging out with Harry Orchard at this time. Probably, was, yeah. You know, tending chickens. And I think he's, he, he had the cabin at that point out, out in two yard near the chicken coops. So yeah, it's kind they, of fun to think of those two together. Probably crossed paths. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like he stayed out of trouble for the most part while he was here. Uh, He just kind of kept his head down and applied for parole literally at every single opportunity that was available. Got to do it. Got to do it. So he applied again in April 1939, July 1939, and April 1940. The only person that wrote to the board on his behalf during this period was his wife, Myrtle, and her letters pretty much contained the same content as before, just details about her struggling to support the children, information about Frank's mining claims, and pleas for help in getting Frank released from the pen. Mm. Frank's own letters during this period were similar to the one he wrote in April 1938. He avoided arguing his case, just described the work that he had done while in prison, and reiterated his plans to revive his old mining claims to support himself and his wife once he obtained a pardon or parole. The letter that Frank wrote to the July 39 pardon board ends with a simple phrase, quote, I have done the best I could while in here and have worked constantly, mm. end quote, which, as we know, working constantly is definitely something the pardon board is looking for. Absolutely. So, on April 3rd, 1941, after serving four years and eight months, Frank Lobear was granted a conditional pardon. <gasps> yeah, so he finally got out. He applied over and over, and he finally gets out on two conditions. 
The first condition is a pretty common one. He has to write to the warden every 30 days for a year. The second condition, much more importantly, states that Frank isn't allowed to return to Valley County. That's where his mining claims are. Would he have lost that claim since he couldn't have been released earlier, or or was that still... I'm really not sure, because Myrtle claims that they'll lose him if he can't make improvements on the property by July 1938. So everything that he had built up is probably Probably gone, gone. and now he can't even return to see if there's anything left. Oh, God. And you know his mind's had, down. his mind's had just been sitting there, right. you know, kind of unprotected for a few years at this point. So even if he did still have the legal right to him, right. there might not have been much left. Right? Yeah. yeah, convicted murderer. Like, oh, no one's gonna bat an eye if I'm going through his stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So we don't really have much information of what went on from that year, from April 1941 to April 1942. But after one year of faithfully checking in with the warden and avoiding criminal activity, he was granted an unconditional pardon one year later, April 3rd, 1942. So now he can go back to Valley County. So it's kind of unclear what happened to him after he left the pen. He had his homestead over in Weezer that he'd patented uh, and his mineral claim up in the mountains north of Weezer, so he could have gone over there. Could have gone back to Valley County once that conditional pardon was gone. And the final letter that was written to the pardon board by Myrtle is from February 6, 1939. We don't know if there's any communication between the two, between 1939 and when he finally gets out in 41. But according to marriage records from Washington State, she married a guy named Chester Lee Jones on August 29th. 1942 so a year and some months after he got his conditional pardon and just a couple months after he got his unconditional pardon so it seems like myrtle had moved on yeah interestingly i couldn't find a divorce record for the two but she does list herself as being divorced on the marriage license to chester lee jones we don't really have any idea what, what Frank Lobauer did until 1948 or 1949. So there's this book called Trapped, the tragic story of the Lobauer Estep murder affair on Big Creek. Uh-huh. And it's written by Peter Preston. And it was written as part of like the Idaho National Forest like Heritage Project mm-hmm. sort of thing. In this book, Peter Preston went up to Big Creek, he got a lot of interviews with people that lived up there, some of the older residents, and he talked to them about some pretty interesting things. So according to the residents, in 1948 or 49, Frank Lobear arrived at the Big Creek Ranger Station. He asked to be taken down Big Creek to the base of Ramey Ridge so that he could hike into his old mining claim. He would have been 61 years old at the time. So there's two conflicting accounts. One guy says that he drove him down there in a uh, pickup truck, and the other guy says that he took Frank down there on horseback. So not really sure which one's right, Yeah. but everyone agrees that Frank walked off into the snow, heading up Ramey Ridge, and nobody ever saw him again. At least what? that's recorded. Yeah. 
So at some point, the residents realized that Frank was missing. They were like, hey, what happened to that old guy that we, you know, took to his old mining claims? And so they said that they took dogs out there and searched for him, but they didn't find any trace of him. Fast forward a couple years to 1953, and a local legend is born. Oh, yes. Somebody starts claiming that he's found Frank's shoe in a bear trap. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So according to the story, a man named Joe Powell found the shoe stuck in a bear trap near Gold Creek which is kind of, you know, in that Ramey Ridge area with bones sticking out of it. Oh. It was assumed by the people involved that he had wandered into the trap and couldn't release himself. So being stuck in the trap, his body was most likely consumed by predators and he probably died of exposure prior to that. Oh. Yeah. So... All that was left was a shoe and a few foot bones. Wow. Now, you would think if, you know, you found a shoe with some bones sticking out of it in a bear trap, you'd report it to the sheriff's office. Maybe. And the, the people that were involved with this said that it was reported, but I, I would think that, you know, if the sheriff's office had been told about this, they would have wanted that bear trap and shoe and the bones. Evidence, right. Yeah. yeah. And there's there's no record of a report mm-hmm. that, that we could find. And the bear trap and the shoe actually got hung up on the wall at the Big Creek Ranger Station <sighs> above the door. Wow. So, yeah. And of course, we got to take this whole legend with a pretty big grain of salt. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It is word of mouth, you know, oral tradition kind of legend. But it's interesting to think about nonetheless. Yeah. Something that adds a little bit of credence to this story that author that wrote this book that mm-hmm. documents, you know, all these stories from the residents of Big Creek, he did a little bit of digging. He wanted to know if the shoe could be connected to Frank Lobear. And he actually found out that the store that was there at Big Creek, at the time that Frank arrived there, Mm -hmm. they actually stocked the exact shoe that was found in the trap during that time. It was called a ball band shoe, and it was made by the Mishawaka Rubber and Woolen Manufacturing Company. (laughs) That's wild. So the time period lines up with the the shoe that was found. So. Basically, we don't really know for certain what happened to Frank, uh, but based on Peter Preston's conversations with Big Creek locals, we can say with certainty that he returned to Big Creek and set off towards his old mining claims on foot in the snow and was never seen again. Was it his foot that was found in the bear trap? It's a local legend, so who knows? So sad, this whole story, but... It just keeps getting worse. (laughs) Thankfully, we're at the end here. The end of the rabbit holes that I dug into. Yeah. But it is just a, a sad story, but really well documented. Yeah. A lot of interesting accounts from oh, everybody involved. So, man. Well, yeah. this whole time I've had this lingering question of like, how did you get into your camp? Did you, 
hike? Did you boat? Did you fly in? Yeah, we flew in. You flew um, in. We were okay. in a little single engine, uh, I believe it was a Cessna 172. Wow, um, okay. Yeah. So, you, so didn't, you didn't have any bear traps along the way. <laughs> no, we didn't have to worry about anything like that. But we did do a lot of hiking and backpacking when we were out there. Yeah. So luckily wow. we were on pretty well-maintained trails. So we didn't oh. have to worry about bear traps too much. I, I've i never been. Um, could you see somebody just easily get disappearing in these woods? And Oh, yeah. So he, he could, his remains or something of him could still be. Could still be out there somewhere. Yeah. Whenever we went out, we took a GPS locator with us oh, that was connected to the research station managers. So if we got into some trouble, we could always send them a, a ping and they'd be able to wow. find us, which is a luxury that, you know, back in 1940s and 50s yeah. really didn't have. Right. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So. And what did you encounter? Any wild animals, bears or mountain yeah. lions and things like that? Yeah, we, we saw one mountain lion when we were out there. Uh, and then every once in a while, we'd see a black bear. There were some apple trees on the campus, and the bears would come in and try and steal our apples. <laughs> um, and then there was actually a herd of deer that lived on the campus. It's like they had figured out that hunting wasn't allowed on that little 160 acres. Yeah. So they would just hang out there. <laughs> that's fun wow well ian that is quite the story did did you know of anybody who is the is the bear trap with the so when i was out living in the wilderness and i first heard this story one of our professors i seem to remember him telling us that that bear trap disappeared a number of years ago yeah. i haven't been out there to personally check but from what I understand, it's not there anymore, yeah. and no one's really quite sure where it went. Oh. And the shoe went with it. So, <laughs> Well, if any listeners know of this bear trap in this shoe, please let us know. Email Ian or send an email to behindgraywalls at gmail.com. We'd love to find this. And That'd be great. Bring an end to the story, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we knew exactly what happened to him, that would be amazing. Wow. All right, cool. Ian. Any, anything else you want to add? Just my sources. Oh, yeah. Let's get to your sources. I forgot to do that at the, at the beginning here. So my sources today were the inmate file from the Idaho State Archives, the Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Library of Congress chronicling America, the Lobauer Estep murder at Big Creek, Idaho article on intermountainhistories.org, Trapped, the tragic story of the Lobauer Estep murder affair on Big Creek by Peter Preston. David Cougar Dave Lewis Papers, MG190 Collection at the University of Idaho Special Collections and Archives. The uidaho.edu Taylor Wilderness Research Station webpage. Mountainflying.com article on Dewey Moore Airstrip. Cougarfund.org's historical timeline. The United States Geological Survey's Elk City Quadrangle Map, blogs.loc.gov, there's an article on homestead and mining claims in 19th century America, and tons of information from Ancestry Institution, including federal census records, draft cards, and marriage records. All right, Ian, if I were to say do your own time, how would you respond to that? Do your own number. Excellent. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Have a great week.
If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 